are listening to The Addiction Files, where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources, while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are the addiction doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. Welcome to The Addiction Files. We are discussing Stimulant Use Disorder ASAM Clinical Treatment Guidelines. This is a new guide that was just released from the American Society of Addiction Medicine, and we are going to review these guidelines for you. You can access this at asam.org, and this is quite a lengthy document, and we will try to give you as detailed of a review as possible. So this comes from their summary, and the, what, is, what this states is the guideline focuses on the identification, diagnosis, treatment, and promotion of recovery for patients with stimulant use disorder, stimulant intoxication, and stimulant withdrawal. It also does include some recommendations related to screening, risky stimulant use, and harm reduction. And then we'll also briefly cover secondary and tertiary prevention of stimulant use disorder. So we're going to start out with a review of some stimulant epidemiology, and then we'll get into these guidelines. All right, Paula. Okay, so we're going to do a review of the stimulant stimulant epidemiology, which is quite shocking, actually. And in the midst of the opioid epidemic, I think we need to take pause and look at what's happening with stimulants around the United States. So between 2012 and 2021, deaths involving all stimulants, so that includes methamphetamine, amphetamine, and prescription stimulants, increased more than 12-fold. So that's over that period of about nine years. And the rate of overdose deaths involving cocaine more than tripled. So that increased by about 21% per year. And there's been a large increase in the risk um, from use of stimulants due to the increasing potency of illicit stimulants, just like we're seeing with the potency of, of synthetic opioids, and the problem of increasing use of stimulants in combination with opioids. And we're seeing this both intentionally and non-intentionally. We're seeing more than ever people with opioid use disorder using stimulants, and this is a growing trend resulting in combined overdose deaths. And then we're also seeing an intentional exposure to stimulants with people who are using opioids where they're, excuse me, of people who are using stimulants where their supply is contaminated with fentanyl. So in 2021, 50% of all overdose deaths in the United States involved stimulants. 50%. That's huge. 23% uh, involved cocaine. And 30% involved other psychostimulants, which were primarily methamphetamine. Um, stimulants, you know, we've got to remember that they don't only result in death and overdose death, but they also lead to long-term health problems, which involve a lot of different organ systems, including cardiac, pulmonary, psychiatric, dental, um, nutritional problems, and dermatological issues. And they can cause long-term and irreversible cognitive impairment. Furthermore, people who use stimulants via injection route um, are at risk for bloodborne diseases, including HIV and viral hepatitis, and they're much more prone to infections like infective endocarditis, osteomyelitis, etc. So that's pretty shocking. 12-fold um, increase in deaths over the last nine years. This is data up to 2021, and a huge increase in um, 
overdose deaths involving stimulants, actually 50% of all overdose deaths in the U.S. involving stimulants. Yeah, I think that really holds true. Just, I mean, in our careers, we've seen a significant increase in just stimulant misuse. Absolutely. So let's go over the guideline and I'll go over the first section and then Darlene is going to go over the rest of it. So um, we'll talk about this kind of seven key takeaways with this guideline and it's broken down into their key recommendations. So like Darlene said, this is a lengthy and very detailed and very well-written clinical document. You can download the document for free. And it has wonderful uh, kind of key points at the very beginning. So if you don't want to read the whole, I think it's what, 122 pages or something like that. If you don't want to read the whole document, you can go ahead and just read the key points at the beginning, or you can go to the section which is applicable to you. Like if you want to look up information on adolescence and stimulants or secondary prevention, then you can go to that section. But let's look at the general stimulant use disorder treatment guidelines in terms of psychobehavioral therapy. So number one, this is the first guideline, and that is the best effectiveness for treatment of stimulant use disorders compared to any other intervention studied. And it is still the gold standard of care, and we have talked about this before on the podcast in our methamphetamine episodes, is contingency management. So this is a psychobehavioral intervention where you reward people for negative urine drug screens um, from stimulants, either with vouchers or money or um, gifts, and they get increasing a number of awards based on their cumulative negative urine drug screens. This method has been proven to be very powerful for people who have stimulant use disorder, and there's a lot of research out there backing this up. Contingency management can be combined with other interventions and behavioral therapies, such as the community reinforcement approach, which is known as CRA. This increases family, social, and educational reinforcements, as well as vocational, which support recovery. So it's kind of a wraparound type approach for people. And also cognitive behavioral therapy has recommendations and efficacy for treating people with a stimulant use disorder. So that's the first guideline is don't forget about contingency management as being gold standard. California just got approval from Medicaid to actually get funding uh, and reimbursement for contingency management, which is amazing. And I think other states hopefully will follow suit. All right, so pharmacotherapies. All right, Darlene, this section is a little bit mind-boggling because there's basically amphetamines, amphetamine-type stimulant use disorder, which we think of like methamphetamine or prescription amphetamines like Adderall. And then there's cocaine-type stimulant use disorder. And we have a lot of medications which cross over and can be used to treat both. So we'll try and simplify it a little bit. And we want to remember that there are no uh, FDA approved medications to treat stimulant use disorders. So we use these medications, but they're off-label. And we have data that has been proven and then disproven. But really, we're getting you know more interest in what these medications can do for people. And we always want to try something and never give up, right? Um, what we know is that we've got stimulant use disorder patients who may not have a co-occurring disorder like ADHD. And then we have patients who have stimulant use disorder who may have ADHD. And so the treatment considerations for those people are slightly different. But let's take a look at someone who has stimulant use disorder. So they're using cocaine and 
or excuse me, amphetamine type stimulants, what medications are available to you to try for these people? Well, let's look at bupropion first. This has been studied quite extensively and it can be used for either cocaine or amphetamine type stimulant use disorder. It has some efficacy and it's particularly helpful for patients who also have tobacco use and or major depressive disorder, of course, because those are the primary indications for bupropion. So bupropion is a medication that has got proven efficacy for stimulant use disorder, and so you should consider its use. Second medication is topiramate. Topiramate is a medication that we use pervasively in addiction medicine, has a unique mechanism of action, and it has been studied for the use of patients with cocaine use disorder. It's particularly helpful if you have a patient who's also using alcohol because it's got efficacy for alcohol use disorder as well. So don't forget uh, topiramate as one of your options. Mirtazapine has efficacy and has been proven to be helpful for patients who are using amphetamine type stimulants. And there was a really great article published in the American Family Physician Journal several years ago. Um, addressing treatment options for patients with stimulant use disorder. And that's where they cited, I think, the preliminary research for the use of mirtazapine. And I think this is where the clinical guideline has gotten that. So mirtazapine is particularly helpful for patients with major depressive disorder as well and or who have sleep problems and or appetite problems. And I have to say just clinically, I find mirtazapine really helpful. I mean, I find topiramate helpful too, uh, but I've been using mirtazapine more and more, and I think patients actually do really well because it stabilizes the mood, helps them sleep, helps with appetite, which are typically all things that we're looking for when we're treating someone with a stimulant use disorder. Now, recently, and we actually did a whole um, podcast episode on this, there's a combination of medications that can be helpful for amphetamine-type stimulants, and that is bupropion and naltrexone. So we talked about the study that was in, was it 2023, the beginning of 2023, I think the study came out? Yes. And it's high dose bupropion, so 450 milligrams, which is pretty high. Mm. And sometimes people don't tolerate that, although typically people with stimulant use disorder do. And then naltrexone, I am naltrexone. And uh, again, dosed every three weeks. Dosed every three really? weeks. Okay, thank you for saying that. And it's interesting because they it showed a statistically significant difference in negative um, urine drug screens for amphet for amphetamines, but it wasn't a huge number, right? Remember that it was like a third yeah. percent, but nonetheless, it was something. And the rate of negative urine drug screens for those people in the control group was like nearly zero. Like no one's able to stay off of um, with nothing with nothing so it was yeah. some difference and again because of the nature of bupropion and the indication of naltrexone for for alcohol use disorder this might be a great combination for people who have depression and or alcohol use disorder so keep that in mind the last medication that we're going to talk about <clears throat> for people who don't specifically have ADHD just stimulant use disorder would be modafinil for those people who have cocaine use disorder. Now, I have to say I haven't used modafinil. However, it does have some efficacy. And what they're looking at is for people who have, uh, you know, cocaine use disorder where really nothing else is helping. And it is a controlled substance that so you have to use very careful and, and um, 
persistent monitoring for people that you're going to prescribe a controlled substance to when they have an active substance use disorder. Have you used modafinil? I have not. And when you talk about really close monitoring, so they had very specific recommendations. So what are those, Paula? Yeah, and we're going to thank you about that. Even It's important to talk about that now because we're going to go on and talk about some of the treatments for patients with stimulant use disorder with ADHD. And the recommendations from this guideline, and these are really clear, is they recommend that when you're prescribing a controlled medication to a patient who has a stimulant use disorder, you need to assess the risks and benefits for each patient. They need to be closely monitored and they need to only be prescribed by a physician who specializes, uh, excuse me, a physician specialist who are board certified in addiction medicine or addiction psychiatry and physicians with commensurate training competencies and capacity for close monitoring. So that that means that you really are limited. I mean, if you want to treat people or your organization wants to treat people with stimulant use disorder with stimulants, you need to have a board-certified addictionologist on board. And that addictionologist needs to be capable of very close, very, (laughs) there's my cat, sorry, (laughs) very close monitoring. So in other words, the capacity to see patients weekly and to do urine drug screens and to interrogate the prescription drug monitoring program and to have the clinical support to do that. And that's not because we're stigmatizing patients with this disorder. It's just about the risk of giving someone a stimulant when they have a stimulant use disorder. We don't want to put people in You're talking about the use of when we're talking when you get into using a stimulant, you're talking schedule two controlled substance off label. So that requires that, like that's why that recommendation's coming in. And so you ha- it does require very just strict monitoring. So that that's why that guideline's there. And I think that's very appropriate. Right. I mean, you think about people have said to me in the past, and they're like, well, why can't we use stimulants to treat stimulant use disorder? We use opioids to treat opioid use disorder. And yeah, it's a great question. And now these recommendations are endorsing that. But the opioid, when we use a Schedule II opioid to treat opioid use disorder, it's only in the setting of a federally regulated clinic. And that's methadone, right? And so it's highly regulated and monitored. And even when we use a Schedule Three medication to treat opioid use disorder, buprenorphine, we're still under quite a lot of regulations. Mm-hmm. And again, it's nothing to do with, well, it should not have to do with stigma or um, you know, creating barriers to access care. It has to do with um, not creating more harm. Exactly. Yeah. But I think it's exciting, however, though, that we have some options. So we have some patients who... Um, definitely have ADHD and also have stimulant use disorder. And sometimes it's difficult to decide what came first, but you've got to dig back and use really good history taking skills into childhood, et cetera. And all the medications that I just mentioned, so bupropion, which is also Wellbutrin, trade name, topiramate, which is Topamax, mirtazapine, which is Remeron, the combination of bupropion and naltrexone or bupropion and vivitrol, um, those can all be used with patients who have both stimulant use disorder and ADHD. So you can remember those can all be options. They're saying in this guideline that you could possibly also use 
topiramate and extended release amphetamine salts for patients who are otherwise not responding. And that's for patients who are using amphetamines and cocaine. So you use a combination of both the topiramate and extended release amphetamine salts with this close monitoring. You could also just use extended release amphetamine salts for just for just by itself without combination of topiramate, right? They've looked at using uh, long-acting methylphenidate for patients who um, have a history of substance use disorder, specifically amphetamine type. And they say the consideration for using long-acting methylphenidate is for people who have moderate to high-intensity amphetamine use early in treatment. So it's almost like helping them get away from that really early withdrawal syndrome and craving. And that would be defined as using amphetamines more than 10 days a month. So uh, one more thing that they commented there is this long-acting methylamphenidate, excuse me, methylphenidate or the extended release amphetamine salts. Um, we typically have to use them for patients in this situation at maximum or higher doses, which makes sense because we're dealing with people typically with higher tolerance. And again, this is where why you have to have good monitoring, right? Because yeah. people may have hypertension, they may have cardiac cardiac sequela from their stimulant use, and you don't yeah. want to be putting them on high dose um, extended release amphetamine salts and without monitoring. So we, this does not mean you put people on instant release Adderall and see them back in three months. It does not mean that a provider who's not trained or board certified in addiction medicine can do this. But it does mean that we have these options and they have some evidence and they're now part of this treatment guideline to help people. And I have to say, I've been doing this monitoring people weekly who have co-occurring ADHD and stimulant use disorder who just haven't been able to get sober. And for the first time, they're actually turning around and doing really well. So it's been really rewarding to see that. And I have the capacity to do that because I'm board certified. I have the clinical staff. These patients are really amenable. They're coming in every single week for a seven-day prescription and a urine drug screen. And uh, we know that if they, you know, what 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 we're doing, what the goal is that we're working towards. So do you have any comments about that, Darlene? Now, and I think exactly what you're saying, Paula, is you're doing the close monitoring because I've also seen the other side where I've had patients coming in who've been given prescriptions like this and unfortunately not monitored and ended up even actually overdosing even from a prescription. Okay, so the next number three of the seven overall guidelines is kind of considering co-occurring conditions. I mean, I think this is commensurate with all with all substance use treatment you always want to take into consideration yeah. someone's co-occurring conditions and treat them yes. competently okay so they've officially made this treatment guideline on the management of all conditions that you need to treat depression anxiety eating disorder adhd etc as well and use evidence-based uh, um, tools to do that and also use care coordination to give people the best care possible Okay, number four, special populations. So let's talk about special populations really quickly. Let's talk about adolescents and young adults who use stimulants. Basically, we just provide this population with the same treatment and we offer them harm reduction and we offer them recovery support services. However, we just have to adapt those into a developmentally responsive manner. So remember that we're dealing with adolescents and not people in their 20s, 30s, and 40s, and we do not treat adolescents in the same group milieu as we do adults. Um, formal recommendations, you know, 
uh, adolescents and young adults specifically respond to contingency management and CBT and the community reinforcement approach. Family therapy becomes very important for the treatment of stimulant use disorder for kids. And they do have a recommendation for modifying contingency management for adolescents. So instead of using a classic model where you use drug tested rewards, they give, they say you modify and use other rewards for no drug behavior. So instead of giving them money or vouchers, you say, well, you have increased time on your phone, or you can go, you know, you, you can go on this outing and make it more developmentally appropriate, basically. They also say to use peer age groups. We already talked about that. And then when you talk about using pharmacotherapy for adolescents and young, young adults, again, we're using off-label medications. And so we have to consider if the benefits of these medications outweigh the harms and, uh, and then have this informed consent conversation with both the patient and their consenting parent or guardian if they're in a state where you require uh, parental consent for treatment. And like we're in Utah and you actually do have to have parental consent for treatment. So uh, another interesting recommendation from the guideline is to counsel parents and guardians to not conduct home drug tests to assess stimulant use without the oversight of a trained clinician. And this has to do, this is actually a strong recommendation. This has to do with just the quality and reliability of home tests and what the kinds of consequences that come from a false positive or false negative test, basically. Um, involvement of family members is crucial for patients with any substance use disorder and involving family members is really important for the recovery, not only for the adolescent, but also for the whole family unit. All right, another special population is uh, our pregnant and postpartum women. So this, it's, it's really interesting because there's a lot of kind of uh, high emotion around pregnant women and stimulant use. I mean, I think it's true around all substances, but for some reason, especially stimulants, and you need to coordinate prenatal care and the treatment of stimulant use disorder for these ladies more than ever, right? Because there are significant sequelae associated with stimulant use for in terms of like low birth weight risk for other um, outcomes. And then you need to know your state's requirement for reporting because there are some ramifications of drug testing and reporting state by state. So um, if you're working with pregnant women, you want to be aware when you're treating patients with stimulant use disorder, what your state's requirements are, what the mandatory reporting is for your state, and what the ramifications are when you report a woman who is using or who has stimulant use disorder. All right. One last thing about, and I think you brought this up when we were reviewing this, uh, Darlene, that women who are um, using stimulants should, illicit stimulants should not breastfeed. And this is not the same recommendation as for women who are using opioids, right? If they're right. actively using stimulants, except as prescribed, then we counsel them not to breastfeed. And again, this is a strong recommendation. Do you have any comments on that? Or because I know that you, in your practice, you've seen a lot of women over the years. Um, no, I mean, I think that's just, I mean, that's just the current recommendations, even like, even prescription stimulants, it's not recommended pregnancy okay. and breastfeeding. It's discontinued. It's discontinued. So right, it's discontinued. Go. And so 
that's so that's that's just information we just need to provide. All right. Yeah. Good. Okay. Last last special population, and then I'm going to hand it over to Darlene, are our folks who are experiencing homelessness or unstable housing. And, you know, for these folks um, experiencing homelessness and housing insecurity, food insecurity, the main focus here is to provide case management services who can help with navigation of health and um, social services, as well as providing the stimulant use disorder treatment. And this goes back to like hierarchy of needs type things and looking at projects and programs that really help people recover in a holistic way, like Housing First. People have a very difficult time recovering from stimulants if they don't have a safe place to live, they don't have access to food, safety, basic basic human rights. So case management services is the formal recommendation from this treatment guideline, and it is actually a strong recommendation. So there you go. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Paula. So now we'll just go into the stimulant intoxication and withdrawal guidelines section. And we will talk about basically diagnosing stimulant intoxication. And this is base, is really from the patient history, the physical exam, the urine drug screen. And then we'll talk a little bit about some of the basic labs you'll obtain. So looking at getting a CBC, CMP, liver function tests, CK, you're looking at lactate. So thinking about muscle breakdown, troponin cardiac injury, particularly when you're thinking about obviously your cocaine. And then you're and thinking things you're looking about with your CBC. So if you remember levamisil causes the neutropenia and the small vessel vasculitis. So those are some particular things that you're looking for in that. And then we'll go through basically some of the breaking it down into some of the specific kind of um, systems and your responses to that. I think that uh, that's how they broke it down. I think that's a good way to look at it. So if we look at the hyperagenergic symptoms of stimulant intoxication and how one recognizing that, and then how do you manage that? Many of this is um, urgent and emergency room responses. And so for those that are working in our emergency rooms, this is typically more for that. Although I mean, Paula, I know you have seen some of this that comes into your clinic. So those that have kind of these low barrier access and accept walk-ins, you and we both have actually have have these patients that come in that are kind of in these like acute stimulant intoxication. So it is good to be able to recognize and maybe even for triage, you may not manage all of it, but you sometimes need to be able to recognize what is urgent and needs to be maybe referred to the ED on there. So first, you know, it's just your basic, you need to obtain your, you know, vitacides managing heart rate and blood pressure and then treatment. So if you recognize you've got a stimulant induced hyperadrenergic state, then our first line treatment options for those is we're looking at our GABAergic agents. So that's our benzodiazepines, phenobarbital and propofol. Again, I would I would never be administering these in outpatient setting. We're talking about this is in a hospital emergency room type setting. So those are considered first line treatment for this purpose. And if you still have some neuromuscular hyperactivity even after administration of a benzodiazepine, 
then we can start considering going to like a beta blocker. And this is one with some, maybe some concomitant alpha one antagonism. So that's your class of like your carbidiol, abetalol. And then you're looking at possibly alpha two adrenergic agonists. And we talked about this a little bit in our stimulant, like intoxication episode. So your dexmedetonidine for severe symptoms, clonidine for mild to moderate. So it's really just, again, reassessing your patients very closely. So I mean, it kind of just shows you as you go down that cascade, how severe these patients can be and how, how much this like acute intoxication can be. So if you have a beta blocker contraindication, you can consider some options as calcium channel, like such as a calcium channel blocker or an alpha-1 adrenergic antagonist that we mentioned up before. And then clinicians should always be alert to potential side effects when you're using a calcium channel blocker, such as, you know, you would have some poor control over the tachycardia or you can get some reflex tachycardia. So that's why you're doing continuous like heart rate monitoring there. So just being aware of that. Things just, you know, common, these are very just common, like your cardiac monitoring things to be aware of, of just avoiding long acting hypertensives because you don't Again, you don't want to suddenly have like hemodynamic collapse and things like that. And you would use your typical cardiac pathways if you are seen. So you would use nitroglycerin if the patient's exhibiting signs of cardiac ischemia and so and proceed appropriately. Dehydration and electrolyte imbalances. And it's interesting because even we agree, like there's just there is a significant just lack of evidence and research in this area. And they cited this in the paper. So that was really interesting. But the recommendations are is do it should be managed according to the standard, the standard of care. So the standard of care in your hospital, your local area, or standard best practices. So hyponatremia can be seen with stimulant use and it can present as confusion reduce consciousness and the level of it, you know, obviously you could even hyponatremia can result in seizures caused by water intoxication. You can, in, you know, if you have concurrent use of MDMA. So pay, you know, that's where obtaining appropriate laboratory monitoring, seizure management. If you don't need to do the full workup for seizure is if it's, if it's known stimulant intoxication. Does that, if it's not well explained, then you would do your normal workup and management of seizures, but you still treat and correct, obviously, if it's electrolyte imbalances and correct for any kind of other like acute issues that would be exacerbating with seizures. Hyperthermia. So that's also another common finding. So again, there was no this was another area where there's not any standard data. So it's again. Managing hyperthermia with stimulant intoxication, you're using your best practices. So in general, so they gave kind of your two guidelines. If you have temps, so we're talking 40.5 Celsius, you know, for our European listeners and 105 degrees Fahrenheit for us Americans, 
Immersing, immersion in a cooling water bath is typically indicated for rapid and for rapid cooling. And you can combine that with pharmacological treatment because generally part of the issue is you've got to have some kind of sed, you know, sedative and sedating meds to try to stop like the uh, agitation and the muscle movements. And then that will also help to accelerate cooling. For a less severe hypothermia, so less than the 40.505, then you just use our typical evaporative methods. So cool, cool compresses, misting fans, things like that. And then specific to cocaine, just remembering that it has some local anesthetic-like effects at sodium channels. So this can result in QRS widening. If this is identified in, in addition to treating acute intoxication, then that's when you should administer some sodium bicarbonate and that improves the conduction and block conduction block and contractility. And that does, if just thinking about again, the acid-base balance, this improves the metabolic acidosis if present. So that's just one pearl when you're thinking about that's unique with with that type of stimulant. Rhabdomyolysis, and this is one that actually a few times, Paula, we encountered this as residents. So you, frequently with stimulant intoxication, this can occur, and this usually is a result of the severe agitation and hypothermia. Like, there was no studies identified that were particular to just stimulant intoxication and withdrawal. But they did find avoid, you want to replace fluids, and that's our typical treatment. So you want to get their urine output up. And the typical standard of care is usually greater than two milliliters per kilogram per hour. That's like our typical like rate. And then the one thing that is recommended that seems to be found is supporting alkalinization of the urine as that inhibits amphetamine elimination. So primary management is fluid replacement and management of the agitation and hypothermia. So those are your main things so you don't worsen that rhabdo, if that makes sense. Acute psychosis. So psychosis safety, this is really key. So the typical keeping them in kind of a quiet, calm environment, low-level light, reassurance, orient the patient frequently to the daytime. And then I think this was a really important concept, telling them what they can expect from treatment. Use of restraints should be avoided unless absolutely necessary to protect the safety of the patient and or staff. And I really appreciated this statement. This was from the CMS and they included this in here, but says all patients have the right to be free from physical or mental abuse and corporal punishment. All patients have the right to be free from restraints or seclusion of any form imposed as a means of coercion, discipline, convenience, or retaliation by staff. Restraint or seclusion may only be imposed to ensure the immediate physical safety of the patient or staff member or others and must be discontinued at the earliest possible time. We've all seen this and experienced at times when patients come in extremely agitated and, and, and sometimes fully psychotic. And this can be quite pronounced and severe, but that's where giving, you know, if we're worried about with acute agitation and so using the appropriate medications 
and the appropriate environment. And it was really interesting. There was a study from Australia, and it says 300 cases from the Australian data, and this was from 2009 to 2015, found that suicide compromised 18.2% of all methamphetamine-related wow. deaths. That's so, a lot. And so that goes again with that psychosis like that comes. So being very careful that we are managing that and continuously like monitoring their status and treating appropriately. So as far as like medications after the acute, so once you get past like the acute management and stabilized the persistence of psychosis management. So you want to first focus on the treatment of psychosis on underlying causes. Is there any underlying conditions that could cause it? So once we have replaced any electrolyte, any trauma, make sure that there's no like head injuries or other, because that can be a common injuries can be a common cause that could, you know, that could make those symptoms worse. Then there was some data that suggests some research that suggested olanzapine or quetiapine may be preferred for the management of methamphetamine-induced psychosis. However, the evidence is considered low quality, and the studies did seem to have some risk of bias. So that's for what that's worth, but it's important treat treat what you're seeing. We've talked about that before, and monitor. We had a fabulous, fantastic episode with Dr. Ballister, who went into more detail with this on how we manage methamphetamine-induced psychosis. And particularly if you see prolonged, this can be when we're seeing this goes into months. Our all guidelines. So abrupt discontinuation, patients will typically experience 12 to 24-hour irritability, somnolence, and this is typically just due to the catecholamine depletion and sleep deprivation. So, you know, frequently they're admitted and they just will sleep for about a day. They should be very careful monitoring their mental health and vital signs. And it's generally focusing on their presenting symptoms and their behaviors and just making sure that we have a safe and calming environment. And therapies, okay, so few pharmacotherapies have been investigated for the treatment of stimulant withdrawal. And even however, most of the studies are very small and low quality. A Cochrane review on a treatment of amphetamine withdrawal that included four randomized controlled trials included 125 participants did not find any pharmacotherapies to be effective for treating general stimulant withdrawal. So there's really not a, so basically there's no FDA approved withdrawal medications and yeah. there's, it's just really symptomatic, you know, trying to ameliorate some of the symptoms and treating any mental health symptoms that you're seeing at the time and just supportive care. Uh, we, they really talk more about secondary and ter tertiary prevention guidelines. Primary prevention is far beyond really the scope that we can get into. And that's what they, they talked about in this. So secondary prevention is essentially when we look at clinical practices that identify patients who use stimulants in non-medical ways, but do not meet diagnostic criteria at the time for stimulant use disorder. 
And what you're doing is then intervening to prevent escalation to a stimulant use disorder. So it's either a patient who is using using a prescribed medication in a non-medical way, or a patient who is using a, 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 a either a legal or illegal stimulant record, you know, intermittent, but not on a daily or to meet the full DSM-5 criteria as a stimulant use disorder and providing, you know, treatment options, harm reduction, uh, you know, uh, you know, options for them. Tertiary prevention constitutes clinical recommendations to reduce the harm associated with non-medical stimulant use, regardless of the presence or diagnosis of a stimulant use disorder. For treatment guidelines are, number one, contingency management continues to demonstrate the best effectiveness for treatment of stimulant use disorder. This can be combined with psychosocial interventions like CBT or CRA. For pharmacotherapies, remember that we have a handful of medications that can be used off-label to treat stimulant use disorder. We have bupropion, topiramate, mirtazapine, and then a combination of bupropion and injectable naltrexone. So that would be Vivitrol. Those medications all have efficacy for either cocaine and amphetamine type stimulant use disorder or one or the other. You could choose one of these medications based on co-occurring conditions with your patient. So if they have tobacco use disorder or major depressive disorder or alcohol use disorder, that would then govern which medication you would choose. And it's worth trying one or all of these in sequential order because you just want to keep on trying just like you would any other medication for a medical condition that's not responding. If you've tried all those medications and the patient's not responding, in addition to contingency management and other psychosocial interventions, and they have ADHD, and you're an addiction psychiatrist or an addiction medicine doctor, and you, or you have capacity to, to refer to those people, you could consider using extended release amphetamine salts or extended release, excuse me, long acting methylphenidate. You can use long acting methylphenidate and extended release amphetamine salts in combination with those medications we said above, like topiramate. Uh, remember to always treat co-occurring conditions for our patients and then for special populations like adolescents and young adults are basically using the same treatment principles, just modifying them to be developmentally appropriate. Pregnant and postpartum women need special care for their stimulant use disorder and you need to be aware of your state's requirements on mandatory report, mandatory reporting and ramifications and um, of reporting. So be careful with drug testing with these patients who are pregnant and using stimulants. And then always think about those unhoused and um, food scarce folks and see if case management is the best approach um, in addition to trying to treat their stimulant use disorder because treating it in isolation may not have the results that you want, but they will have the results that we see, which is typically frustrating. So that's pretty much the a uh, summary of the treatment guideline section. And just remember that stimulants are cu- causing a huge problem. And I think you all know that. But now 50% of the overdose deaths have a stimulant in them. So we must start paying more attention to this. And in summary, on a, an intoxication and stimulant withdrawal. So just focusing on first life-threatening complications. So thinking about your hypertensive emergencies, 
your medications to treat that, starting with your benzodiazepines, phenobarbital, propofol, and then moving to beta blockers, or if contraindicated, consider calcium channel blockers in the appropriate patients and be aware of those side effects. Be cautious and looking and making sure you're doing appropriate testing for rhabdomyolysis, looking at acidosis and treating those appropriately. And then those should be addressed immediately and in the appropriate level of care. FDA approved medications for the treatment of stimulant withdrawal and is typically just supportive care and ongoing monitoring. Post-acute symptoms of stimulant withdrawal, which can include mood disorders, depression, anxiety, insomnia, and paranoia, can last for weeks to months. It's important to treat and address these symptoms to reduce the risk for decompensation and return to use. Secondary and tertiary prevention strategies should always be aimed at reducing harms related to overdose risk, risky sexual practices, injection drug use, oral health, and nutrition. All right. Thank you, Paula, and have a good night. Bye-bye. Until next time, hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com. Hosts and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from the source. As each person is unique, you're advised to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on the show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.